Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Polygon Alpha podcast, where the Polygon community gathers insights from today's leaders in decentralized finance, crypto, and Web3. I'm your host, Justin Havens, aka Crypto Texan. Let's get started. On this installment of Polygon Alpha, we are joined by Matt and Ryan, who's from one of the largest and fastest growing crypto asset managers, Bitwise Investments. Matt, Ryan, thanks for being here with us today. How's everything going at Bitwise? Uh, We're doing great. It's great to be in the crypto market. It's great at Bitwise. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, happy y'all are here. So let's just get started with with the two of y'all and your background. Uh, What is your background and... How did y'all end up in the crypto space and eventually at Bitwise? Ryan, I think we'll start with you and then move over to Matt. Awesome. Uh, Yeah, uh, my background is in traditional finance. Uh, Studied finance in college, ended up working in data and analytics for a little bit of while at a uh, consumer, or or, sorry, retail uh, consumer goods company, and then moved over to traditional finance into the asset management space. Worked in FP&A at a a large uh, asset manager called Satera Financial Group for quite a long time before finally, you know, having the uh, the Ethereum bug bite and kind of diving down the crypto rabbit hole initially in 2017. Uh, and then I kind of pulled back a little bit as markets crashed and uh, I don't know, kind of focused on some other things. And then really uh, 2019, 2020 rolled around and, and COVID hit and uh, found myself kind of aimlessly walking around neighborhoods listening to different crypto podcasts and um, through, through that and just through uh, it, it crypto slowly consuming my life and, and those around these lives, I figured this was the path I needed to take uh, and was lucky enough to find an opportunity at Bitwise um, after I've been looking for quite some time for the right fit and was able to make the jump over to the research team uh, about a year and a half ago. And yeah, it's been, been great ever since. We've been we've we've been lucky to have Ryan. Uh, yeah, this is Matt. I'm the CIO at Bitwise. Been here for almost five years now. Like Ryan, I come from a traditional finance background. So before crypto, I was in the exchange traded fund or ETF space for more than a decade. Uh, I was the CEO of a company called ETF.com and built the first ETF data and analytics system uh, and ran that company for for you know more than ten years before selling it. And then looking around for the next big disruptive piece of technology. Justin, uh, you probably know ETFs are have taken over from mutual funds as the way most retail investors invest in stocks. And what many people don't know is 15 years ago, no one believed in ETFs and everyone hated them. There were congressional hearings about ETFs. People thought they were snake oil. They were labeled weapons of mass destruction. And so I saw this new financial technology go from something that people were very skeptical of to something that was mainstream and massive and multi-trillions of dollars. So after I sold that business, I looked around for the next big thing, and crypto was obviously it. It's a bigger innovation than ETFs that has bigger ramifications, and people didn't understand just how big it was. And so I was fortunate to to join Bitwise when it was just a couple people. Now we're over 70 uh, managing over a billion dollars in assets, and uh, it was the best decision I ever made. That's interesting that you're comparing crypto assets, digital assets to ETFs. I think that's definitely a comparison that I have not heard before. It's it's so apt. I'm telling you, there were congressional hearings where they took the leaders of the ETF industry, firms like BlackRock, and they put them in front of senators. And the senators grilled them and said, ETFs are destroying American entrepreneurialism. They're going to destroy the American dream. They're going to collapse the bond market. This is a new technology that can't possibly work, can't possibly be more efficient. We should do things the way we've been doing them forever. People forget that now because literally they're the mother's milk of investing. They're how teachers invest. They're how my parents invest. They're how everyone invests. But new technologies work like that. People were really skeptical of the Internet when it started out. It was just a morass of criminal activity and, and bad information. And now everything that we do is on the internet. So I do think, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid 40s. So I've seen some of these disruptive technologies go from things that people didn't trust, things that people thought were dangerous to mainstream part of our lives. And crypto is doing that and actually doing it faster than these other technologies did. I know it's hard to imagine that now, when you know much of Congress is still concerned about it, the public still doesn't understand it, but the growth curve 
is almost identical and if anything a little bit faster than what I saw at ETFs and, and what I saw earlier in the internet. Uh, this is a great introduction to our talk. And Ryan, I wanted to follow up with you too. You said that you were listening to a lot of crypto podcasts early on. Do you remember which podcasts those were that got you so hooked? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I was listening to a lot of bank lists at the time, uh, at the time when you felt like they were bringing a new uh, kind of like builder or, or founder on every week. And, and each week you actually could stay up to date on everything going on in the industry. Uh, the Defiant was also another one that I listened to um, a lot of, which uh, was great in interviewing founders and kind of introducing all these new primitives being being built out by developers. Uh, those are probably the main two that I listened to uh, when I started out. And then I started listening to, um, yeah, a lot of books and the, the podcast area in crypto has grown so big since then. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to, to listen to all of them these days. So yeah, try to try to stick to, to Bankless and uh, Blockworks Empire is another great one. And um, yeah, some of those kind of more niche ones like Pledge Allegiance as well. Yeah, Kimmy does a really great job with the Defiant. I'm a big fan of that one as well. And everyone listens to Bankless, I think. So yeah, like you guys, like I, I also have a traditional finance background. I was in commercial banking for about 12 years, I think. And then, yeah, then I started working with the index co-op a little bit, um, doing some on-chain crypto native index products, which are really more like ETFs, I guess, uh, when you really look at it. But yeah, and then uh, Polygon kind of asked me to to join and I've been doing that for the past three months. So it's been, it's been a wild ride in the crypto space. But yeah, anyway, let's, uh, let's talk about Bitwise. Like what is Bitwise and why is it important? Sure. I'll, uh, I'll take that one. You know, we're, we're a crypto asset manager. Our niche where we really stand out from our peers is we're the largest crypto index fund provider in the world. So, Justin, you know this coming from IndexScoop. Indexes can be a great way for investors to get broad-based exposure to the market. We created the first traditional index fund that traditional investors could access. And today we manage close to a billion dollars in those index products. That's one reason we're important. If you look at the traditional asset management industry, index funds typically are 30 to 50% of all assets. In crypto, it's a very small fraction, but I think that will grow over time. The other reasons we're important is, uh, or, or our role that we play, is we're sort of a bridge to the traditional finance industry to understand what crypto is. We serve financial advisors, we serve family offices, and we do a lot of education sort of digesting crypto native content from DGENs like Ryan into uh, normal English that these financial advisors can understand. As an example, we wrote the CFA Institute's Guide to Crypto. The CFA Institute is like the leading credentialing organization within the financial industry. So we play this educational role and we help people get exposure. Yeah, and I've read that uh, CFA's report for DeFi, Decentralized Finance, and I thought it was really well-written. Very, very informative. So, and what is the state of the institutional market? Like, what's the institutional market sentiment out there right now that Bitwise is seeing? Sure. Ryan, I'll take a first swing and then you can follow up. Uh, the interesting thing about the institutional market, which is a little bit different than the retail market, is that their interest hasn't waned at all with the pullback in prices. We do more meetings today than we did six months ago when prices were much higher. Institutions are moving on a much slower timeline uh, and the, the, the level of educational interest is, interesting, is, is growing. So that's the first part. Most of them still haven't allocated to liquid crypto assets, but they're doing so. And then the other big thing that's happening in, in the institutional space is to the extent that there were people who were allocating, it was Bitcoin only. And to the extent that institutions understood crypto, it was Bitcoin only. A big thing that's changed over the last six months is that it's moved from Bitcoin only to Bitcoin, Ethereum and other assets. And the narrative has shifted from sort of monetary use cases to a broader array of use cases. And that's been a big shift. So I would say the level of interest is high. Level of allocation is still low, but it's trending up and to the right. Yeah, I w just to build on that, I think that's that's exactly what we're seeing. The, the the upcoming transition, you know, of Ethereum from proof of work to proof of stake has been on a lot of advisors' minds and a lot of the conversations that we're having. And I think that's in part kind of driving this 
uh, this openness to and and kind of like understanding and discovery of other crypto assets with more use cases outside of you know just Bitcoin and kind of you know digital gold or whatever that narrative may be. Uh, and that's really great. And there's a lot of discussions you know in the regulatory circuits or um, you know we saw a lot going on with these with with stable coins recently. But I think all of that ultimately just kind of shows institutions and our institutional partners that there's a lot more to crypto than just, you know, a, a digital gold and, and trying to you know replace the dollar, create a new form of money. Yeah, I think that's right. I have one more thought, Justin, if I can add on. Um, the other thing that's changing uh, is is sort of the, the level of risk that institutions are taking from a career perspective, if they advocate to allocate to crypto is going down. So a few years ago, crypto was thought of as this wild west in the institutional space. No one was doing it. And if you worked at an institutional asset manager and you raised your hand and said, we should allocate to crypto, that was a very risky thing to do. But now there are so many more institutions allocating through venture, uh, through some liquid tokens, it's being normalized, and that's making it a lot easier for the people in these institutions to raise their hands and say, we should look at it. Uh, and that normalization process is sort of uh, been building over time, but I think it's gotten to the point where you're no longer looked at uh, strangely if you say we should do a research project and investigate whether we should allocate to crypto. Two years ago, that was a very risky thing to do. Now it's much less risky. And that's actually a pretty big, pretty big and important change. Yeah, that's interesting. And like, what else are the institutional players paying attention to in regards to the crypto market? Like when they're looking to make an investment, are they focusing on the tech? Are they focusing on who's building on top of it or partnerships or price stability? What are they looking for? I think that given... Given like institutional investors, financial advisors, uh, you know, family offices generally are more long term oriented investors. I think they are approaching crypto as an investment in a technology that's going to you know, continue to kind of grow and evolve over the next 10, 20, 30 years and are approaching it from that framework. Um, I think we see less attention on, you know, who the specific founders are or, um, you know, even what technology they're building on, for example, um, when you think about like scaling solutions or anything like that. And it's more around, uh, you know, what what traditional service uh, is what they're building going to disrupt or replace? And, you know, how do we think about Web3 and crypto as the next evolution of the Internet and technology versus um, versus, you know, uh, kind of betting on founders or betting on, you know, individual kind of like price movement? Yeah, I think that's right. Institutions are pattern matchers, is my experience, Justin. They want to look at something and say it was like this, right? Because they teach you that this time is different are the four most uh, expensive words in finance when you enter the institutional space. So they want to teach you that this was like this. And what Ryan said about them thinking about technology is really important. I see more and more institutions saying this is like other technology waves that we've seen. This is like the adoption of the Internet. This is like the adoption of Web 2. This is like the adoption of cell phone networks. And they're pattern matching to those things that they've seen in the past. And that's giving them a lot of confidence. So as they've shifted from this is a new form of money, which was not something they had seen, to this is a new technology that can sort of be the backbone of how Web 3 develops, I think they're gaining a lot more confidence because it pattern matches to things that they've seen in their career and have been great investments in the past. Yeah, that makes sense. And what is kind of the makeup of your client and customer base? Is it mainly like family offices and high net worth individuals or where else are you getting interest? Yeah, I would say that our primary clients are family offices and financial advisors. Financial advisors are people that manage money for other individuals. Um, and those are really big markets. We have interest on the barbell side. So we have some more institutional, whether that's hedge funds that are allocating or sort of pensions and endowments that are thinking about it. And we have some direct retail investment, but the sweet spot is financial advisors and family offices. A little known fact about financial advisors, they control as much money as institutional investors in the classic sense. So people talk about pensions and endowments, that's a huge market, but financial advisors actually control the same amount of assets. It's a massive market out there. So that's our, that's our sweet spot. 
Yeah, I would just clarify that or add on, I guess, that, yeah, financial advisors, uh, many people, I think, who aren't familiar with the traditional asset management space um, kind of group financial advisors into this unknown institutional category. But it's interesting once you spend a lot of time in the space that a lot of financial advisors are, um, you know, are, are the folks that are managing like our parents' money or our grandparents' money uh, and, and things like that. And so they really are spread everywhere. Uh, kind of throughout the financial and investment industry. And yeah, as Matt said, control so much of the wealth and their interest in crypto is kind of only on an, an up and to the right trajectory, which is really promising. Yeah, what kind of trends is Bitwise seeing in the crypto space right now? Like, what are y'all paying attention to? And are y'all seeing like any potential pressure points um, that others are not noticing in the crypto space right now? Brian, take a take a shot. Yeah, the so I think some trends we're seeing at Bitwise is is there's a lot of uh, opportunity in the market with prices kind of compressing uh, back to you know the levels they were at a year or or more or so ago, and so we're seeing a lot of interest in those who um, you know saw Bitcoin and really decided like, hey, look, I may need some exposure to this when the chance comes uh, as markets were climbing or saw Ethereum or NFTs or what have you. Um, and now that prices have have collapsed, it's really creating a really uh, uh, an interesting entry point for financial advisors for our clients. And so we're seeing a lot of people who have been on the sidelines kind of you know get more serious and and uh, take you know more steps towards gaining that exposure to crypto. And uh, yeah, what's also interesting, I think, is given the the broader market also turned down, and crypto is a generally a small portion of our clients' kind of portfolio, uh, one to two to five percent. Uh, they may have been hit harder in the downturn on equities, and um, that kind of just gives them a chance to reset and really think about crypto as a whole and how it fits in their portfolio. So I think we're actually seeing uh, more interest in the downturn in a, in a number of ways, which is which is fascinating. Um, but there's definitely some. I think there's some apprehension on the regulatory front. Uh, the, the privacy sanctions on Tornado Cash don't help. Uh, the upcoming midterms and you know hot debates around stablecoins are also top of mind. So I think there's some bullishness on a, a good entry point being met with some, uh, you know, some some watchfulness on the regulatory outlook. Yeah, I think that's right. Regulation is on my mind. There's also typically a lot of SEC enforcement actions in September. So there's sort of a short-term regulatory overhang. It has me worried. The longer term things that I've been thinking about, Justin, uh, one is actually regulation. I think crypto views regulation with trepidation. They're sort of worried about the advent of more regulation. I view it as a critical catalyst for the next major bull market. I think a big part of Bitwise's thesis is that institutional investors are a huge wall of capital that's going to enter the crypto market, and they are only going to do so when we get more regulatory clarity. So I don't I don't like the idea of living through the process of the SEC and the CFTC butting heads over what is a security and Congress building uh, legislation that probably doesn't fully understand the crypto market. That keeps me up at night. But at the other side of that, right, there is a beautiful land uh, of building and growth. And so I think a lot about that. The other thing I think about, Justin, that I think the market is going to turn its attention to uh, soon is scaling. Right now, the market has been sort of exclusively focused on the merge and excitement about the reduction in carbon footprint on ETH, the reduction of new issuance of ETH, the introduction of yield. But a much bigger story is going to be scaling. I think people have underestimated the extent to which the lack of throughput on things like Ethereum has slowed mainstream adoption and slowed mainstream use cases and slowed entrepreneurial activity. And so I'm spending a lot of my time thinking about what does this market look like when Ethereum can do 10,000, 15,000, 20, 50,000 transactions a second? What new applications can we see and will be built and will go mainstream? So I'm, I'm sort of moving on to the next technological uh, breakthrough once we get past the merge, uh, which, which scaling is a big piece of. Yeah, at Polygon, we're obviously very, very focused on scaling and we have very, very similar beliefs to what you just uh, described right there. But let's, I kind of want to take a, like a step back and focus on the macro environment a little bit more. And, and we've touched on it a little bit from like a regulatory standpoint, but you know, 
in what does Bitwise feel about the current macro environment and how does that relate to the crypto markets? Yeah, we think there are three drivers for the price of any crypto asset. There's the macro environment, what the Fed is doing, what monetary policy is doing. There's the crypto industry environment, what regulation is doing. And then there are developments that are specific to individual crypto assets. So like Ethereum and the merge. And if you look at the returns of any crypto asset, you can sort of decompose them into those three factors. To give you an example, Justin, in the crypto bear market, there were sort of two phases. There was the November to January phase, which was a macro driven phase. That was when the Fed shifted from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening and it took the market down 50%. Then from May to June, there was a crypto industry phase when Luna collapsed, Celsius collapsed, Three Arrows Capital collapsed, etc. The Fed had normalized, but the crypto industry went through its own sort of echo troubles. Since then, the recovery has happened in part because the Fed market is sort of normalized. We've built in expectations on the macro environment. The crypto industry has stabilized. The regulatory news is mixed, but the crypto asset news has been very good. Ethereum has been progressing towards the merge. That's been giving people confidence. My outlook for like the next six to 12 months is actually that the crypto industry and the asset specific drivers are going to be dominant. I don't think, I think the market has priced in the expectation of what the Fed will do and sort of already accepted that and built that into prices. And so we're going to see what happens in crypto dictate what happens in prices. Because I'm optimistic about what's happening in crypto, I'm optimistic about price direction. I also think you're going to see crypto assets return, not be correlated with the stock market for the remainder of the year because you're going to have these crypto specific factors. So I'm feeling good about it. That could go out the window if we could get a CPI print that's 10% or something, but I don't expect that. I think it's really down to the crypto industry and I think the net trends there are positive. Some regulatory risk, but some major technological advancements in crypto to offset that. And so... I'm pretty constructive on prices from here. And thinking of like regulatory, the regulatory environment as being kind of like a hindrance to innovation, um, I kind of want to talk about Bitwise's or your personal thoughts, Matt and Ryan, on Tornado Cash. You know, is this the type of regulation that we should be looking for? Or do you feel like this is more of an overstep? Does it hinder innovation? What happened? Just your thoughts in general on this subject. Yeah, uh, I'll start and Ryan can build. Tornado Cash is one of those things that's really challenging to think about, right? Because depending on your starting point, you can view it in two different ways. You can either view it as a tool that facilitates money laundering, and that's a bad thing. Uh, and we should stop that. Or you can think of it as a piece of code, a piece of speech, and a neutral technology that can be used for financial privacy and potentially also used for bad things. But core to the U.S.'s sort of view is we shouldn't sanction speech and neutral technologies. And so I think the market has to figure out how to interpret and work with this. Um, and I think it'll be a painful process. It is a process we've seen in other disruptive technologies. Again, the early days of the Internet, there were concerns about whether platforms like Facebook would be liable for anything that someone posted on them. That was a big sort of constitutional and technological challenge that we had to work through as a country. And we ended up doing so in a way that allowed the Internet to, to grow and flourish. I suspect we'll get through it on Tornado Cash, but it raises thorny questions. I think anyone who takes the dogmatic view uh, is probably wrong. It's going to be complex and nuanced. Um, I do think it probably slows down innovation as we work through this process. Right. I, I think there are sort of systematic issues uh, around uh, how things like Ethereum interact with sanctioned addresses and things like that, that, that raise major issues that are going to be a challenge that introduce uncertainty and uncertainty slows down progress. So it's not a good thing, but it's probably a necessary thing. And we'll probably work through it over the next year. I don't know, Ryan, if you have anything to add there. Yeah, I. You know, first and foremost, I think financial privacy is a really big deal and it's and it's really important. So um, I, I think I come f come at it through that lens. And and what Matt said about how, you know, Ethereum and DeFi applications and some of these other kind of layers, I guess, of the crypto ecosystem are going to be able to deal with 
the repercussions of sanctions or of you know regulatory change is kind of you know front of my mind. Um, I know recently there's been a lot of conversation over the past 48 hours around how staking services would deal with these kind of sanctions um, if they were to you know amplify, and that's really concerning, um, especially when you think about how many people and, and how much narrative is currently around you know the power of staking as ethereum transitions and what that does for DeFi with liquid staking and uh you know and DeFi lending applications and so on um that's starting to become very concerning to me and how, how we'll deal with that as as a industry um and so yeah that, that's just front of mind for me is is where do we go from here how do we how do we maintain privacy while also uh, making sure that we can scale because it's inevitable that you know the digital world that we're we're all building is going to collide with the boundaries of the uh, of the world we live in, and we just yeah need to maintain and we ensure we maintain as much of that kind of value and ethos of, of crypto as possible. But I do think it's inevitable that there's some kind of you know collision. We're starting to see that now. I'm I'm a little worried how that how that uh, shakes out for. The application layer and some of the the primitives that I was very excited about and still am excited about, but just a little more, I guess, nervous about the road ahead. Yeah, I think we all share similar sentiments there. And I think it's just, it's kind of lifted the veil on some other centralized points of failure that we have in the ecosystem too, right? Like with Infura and Alchemy censoring transactions to Tornado Cash. So there's like censorship there and you know the front end's getting shut down so i think decentralized front ends and decentralized rpc networks have been something that we've talked about for years in this space but we have nothing never really done anything about it and it almost feels like it's it's too late do you feel like we're too late to make those changes no i don't i don't feel we're, we're too late it is definitely something that we've talked about for a long time and, and yet you still see the centralized front ends uh really dominating the space um and and look it's unrealistic that any a bunch of individuals are going to go trade directly through the smart contracts themselves and so we do need decentralized front ends and infrastructure that can be accessible uh and and you know isn't controlled by a team that is concerned about their livelihood you know regulatory landscape etc so um yeah definitely need to have more focus on that i do i agree i think it's going to just continue to transition from hey this would be a nice to have to this is absolutely critical for the state of the industry and to move forward and that's a necessary transition but there will be some pain points as as we do that and uh, some of that pain is just the education of uh new entrants of kind of industry participants who have been around for a while and in that uh just because there's a DeFi protocol it doesn't mean that the access points and all of the pillars kind of propping that up are equally decentralized um and and yeah, they're equally important. So, yeah. Yep, I agree with that. Broadening out to, to societal impacts, one good thing about this is it's raising the fact that our financial privacy is disappearing and putting it front and center, right? Privacy disappears very slowly and people don't notice. It's like boiling a frog and then you wake up and there's social credit scores that won't let you, you know, book a ticket overseas or something. And the fact that this is sort of pushing that into the forefront and saying, we need to have a conversation as a society about, is there financial privacy? Do we trust governments to be able to sanction every economic activity we do if, if we want to? What are the rules for that road? I think it's better that we have those now than five years down the road when that had already disappeared. So there's a societal good for forcing this uncomfortable conversation and uh, we'll see how we, we, we exit it. Yeah, it, this subject definitely hits on a bunch of very unique talking points like free, like freedom of speech, you know, related to code and credibly neutral technologies and financial privacy. It's just it's very interesting to see how this all plays out in the future, I think. Um, but let's let's divert a little bit. And I want to talk about other big things in the news uh, related to the bankruptcies of Three Arrows Capital and Celsius Um I think it'd be helpful for the listeners just to, you know, just to know how does Bitwise compare to Three Arrows Capital and Celsius? And was any of this a shock to the two of you? It was definitely shocking. Uh, I, you know, I think that, look, the, the unwinding of UST and Luna was not all that shocking. 
Um, I think there was a lot of people, you know, in the months leading up to, to that, uh, that implosion that were, that were kind of expecting something like that to occur. So I don't think that that was that unexpected. The, the fallout and the, um, I guess hand in the cookie jar-ness that occurred thereafter and the unwinding of all that was a little bit surprising, at least, at least for me, um, especially with some of these bigger players. I was disappointed to see the the, uh, you know, level of risk they took, especially when it exposed customer and client funds. Um, so yeah, I would say it was a little bit su surprising how it all shook out and still some of the things we're finding out, uh, even, you know, this week through the earnings releases are, are a little bit, a little bit shocking, but, uh, it just highlights the difference between centralized finance, um, decentralized finance and the importance of distinguishing between the two. Uh, but, but, uh, but yeah, I'll let Matt, I guess, talk through how Bitwise is a little bit uh, different from from those those firms like 3AC and Celsius and others. Yeah, I would add it, it, it was shocking at the time. Of course, in retrospect, it makes all sorts of sense, right? During any great bull market, people let down their guard. Uh, if you think about the real estate market, you know, during the great financial crisis, of course, giving people loans with no income verification and no credit documents was a bad idea. And yet there was a whole industry on Wall Street dedicated to that, right? And it looks insane in retrospect. So of course, extending uncollateralized loans to, to a hedge fund and three hours capital for billions of dollars was a terrible idea. But during the bull run, am I surprised it happens? In retrospect, not. Bitwise is different from something like three hours capital in that we're a unlevered long only investor. So investors give us cash, they give us $100 and we buy $100 of Bitcoin, Ethereum uh, and other crypto assets. And so we're not exposed to sort of the, uh, the blow up risk that you see. It's leverage and poor lending practices that lead to catastrophe, not in crypto, but in all financial activities. It's the oldest financial story in the world. It's happened a hundred times in the history of modern finance. Um, and it happened in crypto, but Bitwise doesn't take on levered positions. And so as a result, we don't have that kind of uh, risk. Right. But it's not uncommon to see like 2X, 3X levered ETFs. Uh, does Bitwise offer any of those or is that something in the pipeline, maybe in the future, do you think? We, we do not at this time. Um, levered ETFs uh, can be interesting trading vehicles. Bitwise right now is more focused on sort of uh, long-term investors. And for that perspective, leverage is a, is a dangerous tool. It's not to say we won't ever use leverage in a portfolio ever. Uh, we might, we haven't, but, but I don't want to foreclose that opportunity. Um, but we won't be, you know, YOLOing into 10x levered exposures into the 50th largest asset. Uh, that's that's not our style. That makes sense. That's safe for your investors as well. It, it seems like it seems like your focus is really just to help individuals get access to this market because it can be very complicated, right? Like opening up. You know, transferring your assets from Coinbase to a MetaMask wallet and then, you know, connecting to the Uniswap and making that trade. It's it's very complicated. And so I, th that's kind of where I see at Bitwise is fitting in uh, for the most part. Uh, I mean, would, do you agree with that? That's exactly right. We make it easy for traditional investors to safely access the crypto market. And they take a lot of comfort that we've been doing it for five years. We've lived through two bear markets. We've lived through forks. We've claimed forks. We've handled airdrops. They don't know how to do any of that. So we abstract away that complexity and get them exposure to what is on an unlevered basis, the best performing asset class in the world over the last three, five and 10 years by a large margin. Right. So uh, for, for traditional investors, I know that Ethereum's, you know, 80 or 90 percent recovery since the market bottom in June is like ho-hum in crypto world. But for a traditional investor used to six percent a year, that's a spectacular return. So we, we help them get exposure to crypto by abstracting away the complexity. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's it's well put. That's our that's our value prop. What are some Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Ryan. Oh, sorry. I was just going to add to that. I think the other element of it is that uh, spoke a little bit earlier about how advisors um, are, are only allocating about, you know, I don't know, maybe 5% of their portfolio at the most to, to crypto. Um, that's about if you think about the amount of like mental capacity they have to follow the crypto market and evaluate crypto assets and subsectors of the crypto market. And then 
choose individual winners like they just don't have the mental capacity uh or not mental capacity i'm sorry but like you know the time to do that um i mean you know as as being full-time in the space i could spend and i have spent just countless hours diving into nft projects and in discord and still you know have chosen the wrong ones many times and so i think the other elements um of what we're trying to do is, is like hey if you're an advisor and you're excited about nfts and you want exposure to the nft space great there's an nft index uh same with DeFi. you know same with same with the top just 10 kind of crypto assets as a whole um if you have a lot of bitcoin great x bitcoin just trying to create that kind of you know directional exposure versus helping you know helping pick individual assets which as we all know in this space is very 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 tough Yeah, and my next question was going to be, you know, what are some of the structured products that or some of the ETFs that you offer your customers? And, and you hit on those, but is there are there any other ones that maybe you didn't touch on in that uh, in that answer? Yeah, definitely. So we have the the Bitwise 10 is our largest and, uh, you know, longest standing crypto index. That's the top 10 crypto assets by market cap. Uh, there's no there's no waiting caps or anything like that. So it's just kind of natural exposure to the top 10 crypto assets. Uh, we have the same index, just excluding Bitcoin, because naturally Bitcoin becomes a large, large weighting of that first index. Uh, so we have the top 10 crypto assets excluding Bitcoin. And then we also have uh, a DeFi index, which is the top 10 DeFi assets, uh, the NFT index, which also includes the top 10 uh, art and collectibles NFT projects. So it excludes things like real estate or, um, you know, like I don't know, trading card NFTs like NBA Top Shots. Uh, and then we have a crypto uh, innovators index as well, which is really exciting. That tracks the publicly traded crypto companies like Coinbase, uh, like MicroStrategy, like Bitcoin miners and Silvergate. So that product's also really exciting. And um, yeah, there's I, I believe that covers most of them. Um, I know I'm missing one or two. So I'll let Matt, let Matt round it out. That's exactly right. The, the, the service we're trying to offer, Justin, is if a financial advisor or institutional investor wants exposure to X in the crypto market, DeFi, Metaverse, Layer 1s, you know, broad-based index, we have a fund that does that for them. We're not all the way to having that product suite, and of course, we're going to introduce more funds in the future, but that's the idea. Ryan ran through some of the, uh, the highlights, but we want to provide that kind of exposure to investors. Yeah, and just kind of looking at some of these uh, thematic ETFs that y'all have, like the DeFi fund. I see you've got like Uniswap, Aave, Maker, Lido, Curve, and, and some other ones. Uh, what goes into the methodology to decide which assets are included in these products? It's a great list of assets you just read through. It made me smile just thinking about that fund. Um, from one perspective, it's very simple, Justin. It's the largest DeFi assets. So we have to define what a DeFi crypto protocol is. We look for uh, protocols that compete directly with a traditional financial services offering. In other words, they offer trading, they offer lending, they offer insurance, they offer asset management. So we define what is a DeFi asset, and then we take the largest 10. But there's an important caveat, which is we have a huge number of screens that screen out assets that we think may have significant risks. So we look for assets that may have regulatory risk based on the statements of regulators that may have technology risk that may have liquidity risks. And we actually have an advisory council with uh, folks from four of the leading uh, DeFi sort of venture capital firms in the world, Electric Capital, Framework, uh, Parify, et cetera, that help us screen out assets that may have other risks as well, that make sure the assets in our index have legitimate users, uh, legitimate use cases, and have been tested from a technological perspective to minimize the risk of hacks and other items. So what you're left with is what we think of as sort of a blue chip DeFi index. There are other DeFi protocols that are interesting for investors uh, that we just don't think pass muster for a US institutional investor because of regulatory risks or technology risks. Um, but I think you're left with a pretty great list of sort of the foundational pieces of DeFi. And we're pretty excited about that fund. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of DeFi. Obviously, that's what got me into the space. And yeah, when I look at this fund, it looks like, yeah, the, the blue chip DeFi protocols and seems like a pretty good way to get that just general exposure to the DeFi space. 
And then, and then looking over at the metaverse fund, I see Polygon, Ethereum, Solana, Filecoin, Chainlink. And so these to me don't really seem like metaverse plays, but maybe more like maybe metaverse infrastructure possibly. Uh, so what's the methodology there? And I don't know why, like why not include things like Decentraland, Axie Infinity, NFTX, Sandbox, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I love that question. Um, so the methodology is, is somewhat similar. Uh, it's slightly more complex in that we try to invest in a variety of different sectors of the metaverse space. So it is right to think of it as a metaverse infrastructure space. Um, you know, that's why uh, the, those assets are in there. We do have in smaller allocations um, some, some, of, some of the more traditional metaverse things. Um, I'm not I'm not trying to look at the actual uh, every holding. So so Decentraland is in there. It's just not a top 10 allocation. And the reason for that is things like Decentraland are still relatively small. Right. So um, there's just not that much market cap in digital worlds. It's a sector within the fund. But the majority of the fund is in the infrastructure space. And that, that's about what you would expect in anything as early as the metaverse. Right. The actual metaverse right now is about building the infrastructure so that we can develop these immersive, interconnected digital worlds in the future. And uh, and so most of the fund is invested in it. It's a pretty unique fund. It has two uh, advisors that help us build it. So Matt Ball who wrote a book on the metaverse and is sort of a leading thought leader in the metaverse and Multicoin Capital. They're on the index advisory board and they help decide what's in the index and decide what to over and underweight in the index. And we're pretty excited about it. You know, if the metaverse turns out to be a really big deal, uh, I think the assets in this fund should do well. But it it is an infrastructure play more than a, uh, a physical metaverse play at this point, just because of the nature of the space. Yeah, and I obviously love to see Polygon as the top holding or the top weighted in this fund. Are you seeing a lot of institutional interest in polygon i mean I, I know obviously like bitcoin and ethereum are going to be one and one and two but uh, i guess like what is number three and like where does polygon fit in that yeah I, I do think polygon's up there um you know one thing that that polygon does that's really great it, it has great brand uh recognition and you know it does a tremendous job job marketing and and the partnerships being established you know across all kind of different sectors of the of the crypto industry with with kind of traditional, whether it be like gaming studios or other companies, I think really helps uh, accelerate their kind of like adoption and ascent to one of the top crypto assets, um, at least from from those who, well, I guess people in the industry, but also those who don't follow it as closely. There's just a lot of like great news flow and announcements coming from the Polygon ecosystem. So I do see that as being one of the assets that we, we see a lot of focus on. Um, in addition, the, the narrative around scaling Ethereum, right, and kind of like a scaling, an aggregator of scaling solutions is really, really attractive. Uh, today, because of all the capacity issues we've seen over the past year or so, um, outside of Polygon, I think uh, we've, we've seen a lot of interest in Solana, which, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, it, it, some, of, some of our uh, prospects and clients, customers kind of come into crypto or start to get fascinated with non-Ethereum blockchain. So Solana, uh, Cardano, and some other ones like that. So I would say, yeah, Polygon and Solana are probably the top the top two that I'm hearing hearing questions about outside of yeah, Ethereum and Bitcoin. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think the, the level of interest in Polygon is going to increase over the next two years because I really think scaling is going to be the dominant next narrative once we get past the merge. And that is sort of baked in and understood. The market's going to turn its attention to what's next. What's next is scaling. And obviously that plays directly into Polygon's alley. When we talk to investors about our top 10 fund, we like to call out a handful of assets. Uh, Polygon's one of them because it represents an important part of this emerging ecosystem, which you need to have in order for crypto to be as large and as mainstream as we expect it to be. So we don't talk about all 10 assets because some of them are you know, relatively similar. We're not going to spend a lot of time going through, you know, Cardano and, and Avalanche. Um, but we do talk about Polygon because it's this distinct new other thing that's an important part of the narrative and it does resonate with with investors. 
Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And I, I kind of want to change the subject a little bit to a topic that we've been talking about in the crypto space for ever, it seems like, but definitely like quite a few years. And that is related to the SEC and why won't they just approve a spot Bitcoin ETF? Um, why won't they do it, Matt? <laughs> I don't know. At this point, I don't know. Uh, to give them the benefit for the doubt, of the doubt, when the first spot Bitcoin ETF was, was filed in 2013, they were right to disapprove it. The market was not mature enough to support a Bitcoin ETF in 2013. There weren't institutional custodians. There weren't institutional broker dealers. There weren't auditing standards that we were comfortable with. So they were right at that point. Sometime between 2013 and today, though, they went from being right about it to being wrong about it. There, I can't follow the logic that prevents us from getting an ETF in Bitcoin. And, you know, I spent 15 years in the industry and, and was the CEO of ETF.com. So I just don't know is the answer. I do know that a Bitcoin ETF would lower costs and improve security and improve access for American investors. And so it would be a net good to society, in my view, to have a Bitcoin ETF and a net good for crypto. I hope we get one, and I don't know when it will be or what the pathway is at this point. But there are future ETFs out there currently, right? Is that typically how it works? Like you will approve the futures ETF before the spot ETF from an SEC standpoint? Like what have you seen historically? I mean, yeah, there are futures ETFs. And importantly, the futures contract settles to the spot price. So... Uh, the, the ETF is referencing the spot price in a way, but it's a less efficient way for investors to gain exposure because, of course, there are roll costs in futures and it's just a more expensive, less efficient way of gaining exposure. I think the SEC allowed a futures based ETF because futures trade on a regulated market. Right. The CME is a well-established derivatives exchange. It exists under regulatory structures. So they had an easier time accepting that uh, Coinbase and other crypto trading venues that trade spot Bitcoin aren't regulated as national securities exchanges. Uh, and I think the SEC would like to see that. So that's sort of the, the logical line that they're trying to tread. But it, it makes no sense uh, to me because it references the spot price. So um, historically in ETF land, you've seen both. You've seen futures get approved uh, in, in things like oil. But you've also seen gold, where there's a spot gold ETF that just hold gold in a vault. And that was the first gold exposure in an ETF wrapper. So I don't know, Justin. It's a challenge for me. I wish it had happened. Um, it would be good for investors if it did, and I, I don't know when it will. What other trends are y'all seeing in the space right now? Like, I think on the Polygon side, we're seeing a lot of credit protocols or under-collateralized lending protocols. We're seeing a lot of innovation in GameFi and MetaFi. And then DeSci, which is decentralized science, is something that we're starting to see. Um, yeah, what kind of trends are y'all seeing? Are, are y'all seeing these same trends and, and what else? Yeah, definitely seeing some similar sen uh, trends around around game GameFi. Um, I think gaming is going to be a big catalyst as, as we move forward. And, and not so much the Axie Infinity type games, but more the the like triple A gaming uh, studios that are that are investing tons of uh, capital into developing like really good uh, blockchain games. I think that's a trend that we're going to continue seeing take hold and uh, go from like a narrative, uh, a bullish narrative to actually, you know, materializing. Um, another trend I think that's really big is just improving the user interface of crypto. I, that has been something that's been talked about for a long time, but I think we're finally hitting this chasm of mass adoption. And the reality is, is like I get annoyed using my MetaMask half the time and my ledger and stuff. And if I've been in crypto for years and I'm like comfortable with doing that and it still is frustrating or I still get hung up on random on random transactions, I can't imagine, um, you know, my parents or my sister or anybody kind of coming in and using crypto and using like the true crypto application. So, yeah, I think I think user interface um, kind of getting an entire makeover that it's much needed and is really important. But there's tons of talent that's come through, um, you know, from from Web 2 into Web 3 over the past year. A lot of that talent is like long term here to stay. And I think um, we'll, we'll see that improvement and that facelift, I guess, happening over the next uh, year or two. 
Yeah, I think that's just to double click on that. I think that's kind of what we're seeing as well. I, I was at a conference last week uh, in South Korea and we were talking to all these South Korea DeFi teams. And, you know, we were saying, you know, what what are the next catalysts that's going to drive DeFi further? And the things we touched on were regulatory clarity, uh, user interface improvements, and then also just returning back to core principles, probably. I think we're starting to see that a lot in the bear market where people just put principles first when they're building. And I think that's that's a big benefit as well to the users. So yeah, like I said, we're running up on time, but I just kind of want to give you the last word. Like, is there anything that we didn't necessarily touch on that y'all want to talk about specifically? You, Ryan? Uh, no, I, I think, yeah, I think... I'm good. Nothing, nothing here that I felt we, uh, we didn't touch on. So been a great conversation. Appreciate all the, all the questions and topics. Yeah. I thought it was great as well. I'd also just remind people, people worried about the bear market to keep it in context. Uh, as I mentioned, crypto is still the best performing asset class in the world over the last three, five and 10 years. There are way more people working in the crypto web three DeFi space today than there were three years ago in the last bear, big major bear market. Um, I'm so optimistic about where we're going. The technology is improving so fast. The, the introduction of scalability is going to unlock so many more new applications that, um, yeah, I, I worry people panic because the market has been down a little bit. Uh, if you look at the bigger picture trends, uh, use, investment, uh, people working in the space, technology improvements, regulation, they're all pretty steady state up to the right. And so... Uh, a little bit of patience and long-term view, I think goes a long way. Yeah. And we'll just close this off with where can people go to find out more about the two of you and Bitwise? Sure. Come on over to bitwiseinvestments.com. You can sign up for uh, the monthly letter that we send out and you can follow Ryan and I on Twitter. He's a much better follower than me, but uh, we're both there. I'm Matt uh, underscore Hogan and Ryan is Rasterly Rock, which... uh, is pretty unique and uh and you can find out there but but follow us there awesome and uh yeah to everyone listening and watching thanks for listening and watching if you're watching on youtube be sure to subscribe and if you're listening on spotify or apple subscribe there as well uh thanks again matt and ryan from bitwise and we'll catch y'all next time thanks everyone